Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today, I'm very excited to have Ben Green, the founder of Atrato Group and the principal of Atrato Capital, which is the investment advisor to the supermarket income REIT with the ticker SUPR. They are a FTSE 250 real estate investment trust dedicated to investing in supermarket property, and they aim to provide investors with long-dated, secure, inflation-linked income with capital appreciation potential over the long term. So I'm sure it's very timely-wise to have a REIT on at the moment, especially one that deals with UK grocery. So welcome, Ben. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Ben, I guess we better start with a bit about your background. How did you go from law or studying law to an investment advisory uh, specialising in supermarket real estate? Yeah, it's, I guess I, I started off in law and went down. I, I studied law at university, went down the kind of easy track of, of going into a, to a law career and I was working in in finance law at, uh, at Linklaters and I had a what I say is a moment of clarity at about four o'clock in the morning Thursday morning in the office when I realized that I'd got into the office at eight o'clock in the morning on Sunday and I was still there oh wow yeah <laughs> <laughs> and I thought actually you know what there must be a better way to to do this so actually I went into banking first and then in my banking career I always had a focus on on real assets and that could be property or infrastructure and very much the kind of thing that we're doing and advising super on now which is sort of property assets with long dated cash flows attached to them so that then led to a transition into forming a trato and doing the ipo for supermarket income reads um, and it was a very natural sort of transition uh, and then in my banking career i did an awful lot of deals with um with the grocers so that was very natural to a very close relationship in particular with tesco's brilliant very very interesting and when was the ipo uh, so the IPO was in 2017. Brilliant. How long were you working in the real estate sector specifically before that IPO was done? Well, I, I guess about in, in sort of real assets, about 20 years. So, yeah. so it was 20 years of working around the around the sector and looking at these kinds of asset classes. And then the real kind of relationship with Tesco's and, and grocery started right around the, the GFC, um, helping them to continue their program of, of sale and leasebacks at the time. So we did about £4 billion worth of sale and leaseback's for, for Tesco's between 2009 and, and 2013 in wow. my previous career. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll get on to talking about the GFC in a, in a bit more detail later. But at the moment, with supermarket assets, can you explain why there's this belief at the moment that they are a resilient and counter-cyclical asset class? What's the theory behind that? Yes, I think when you look at real estate assets, I think there are kind of three related things that I that I I look at. So, so one is demand for the asset. Second is the covenant strength of the tenant. How is your tenant likely to struggle? And then the third is is rental growth. So, what I really like about the supermarket sector is kind of the essentiality of the real estate. So, it's it's effectively food infrastructure, and that means that there's, there's no question at all over demand for the asset. And actually, because of the way online works in food. You know, online food is mostly fulfilled through supermarkets. So again, that drives that sort of demand side for the real estate. 
Yeah. That then links into, you know, covenant strength. Um, so, you know, these are all household names who are the tenants for supermarket income REIT. And, uh, you know, Tesco's and Sainsbury's in particular, two of the strongest balance sheets in, in the country. And then rental growth in the supermarket space, the structure of the leases tends to be that you have inflation-linked uplifts in very long leases. So so supermarket income REIT's average lease length is 15 years, and 80% of the leases are linked to inflation. Again, you've got certainty of, of rental growth. And getting all those three things together in one space is, is really unusual in, in real estate. There's usually something that you're, you're worried about. Absolutely. And it's interesting you said the 15-year leases. I actually expected it to be a bit bigger. Have, has that lease length changed over time? I mean, if you were going back to, I don't know, the 90s or the early noughties and you were structuring a new lease, would they have typically been longer? Yes. Yeah, so, so traditionally, the sort of UK institutional lease has been 25 or 30 years. The change to the accounting standards has kind of changed corporate's attitudes to, to the length of lease because they have to they have to now capitalize the lease payments as debt on their on their balance sure. sheets. And so that standard is called IFRS 16. So, so when that came in, that sort of led them to this sort of intermediate lease length where they get enough certainty of occupation, but they don't end up with, you know, with a whole ton of debt on their balance sheet effectively. That's sort, no, of, that's sort of the compromise. Yeah, that makes sense. Wasn't aware of that actually. So very interesting. Um, you kind of mentioned before about the sell and lease backs that were happening kind of post 2008. How did the supermarket sector as a whole perform in the UK in previous recessions, such as the GFC? And do you believe that anything might be different this time around? Yeah, so I think at the grocery sector level, it is going to be quite different. So last time around, the big operators made the mistake effectively of trying to compensate for loss of volumes. As as consumers cut back, they compensated by putting prices up to try to keep their revenues flat and it was precisely the moment that Aldi and Lidl were making a big push into the market and it effectively opened the door for them to to be kind of very successful in that sort of decade post the GFC they're not going to make that mistake again if you look at that's a Kantar probably the best sort of data series on on grocery and looking at their numbers you can actually see that Aldi and Lidl are passing through more inflation than Tesco's and Sainsbury's now customers price perception is probably still that Aldi and Lidl are cheaper but actually that's probably not true anymore and so you can see that Tesco's and Sainsbury's are making a real focus to make sure they don't lose that sort of value edge and then they then they hold on to customers. Wow, very interesting. And are you concerned that investors might feel that there's a bottom to yields? We talked just before we kind of press record today mm. about how much I've never watched UK gilts as much <laughs> as I have in the past yeah. six weeks with all the things going on with the mini budget and then the reversal of that. But do you, is there any sort of feeling that investors might feel that there's a bottom to yields when you're looking at the 10-year gilt? I guess it's a risk-free rate, for example. Yeah, and- yeah. no, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think the first observation is that is that on the, so now we're talking about supermarket property rather than the grocery sector. So, so on supermarket property, the average sort of starting yield has really kind of just bobbed around 5% over the last 20-odd years. And if again, remembering all the way back to 2007, you know, LIBOR was five at yeah. the time, right? And supermarket yields were four and a half. So it's not a given that super, that property yields have to be higher than, than than the Bank of England base rate. Sure. And that's entirely driven by then your what you think growth in rent is going to be. 
Well, I was going to say, is, is that more about an investor's appetite for capital growth? Or is it just seen as actually it's even more risk-free than... Uh... It's a bit of... I mean, I, I think you definitely have to look at sort of total return in, sure. in property. So you've got two elements there. So, so obviously the gilt is a fixed income instrument that the coupon just stays the same. Whereas on a supermarket property, if you buy it at a 5% yield, you know, all things being equal, it looks like the rent's going to go up 4% next year. And, you know, the guilt, the index and guilt market's telling you it's going to go up 4% every year for forever now. So that's obviously quite attractive. So by the time you get to year 10, you've probably got a sort of 7% running yield versus a five to start with. And then, as you say, you also have capital appreciation because if it's an essential asset, which these are, and if the tenant is investing in the asset, which again, they do here, but they're consumer facing businesses, they, they capex these assets, then actually your valuation goes up as your rent increases as well. So, you know, you could quite easily be looking at kind of 10% total returns over a 10 year time horizon for owning a supermarket asset. Whereas your guilt, you would have hoped, all things been equal, you would have earned 4%. Right? Yeah. Is there an element that you might be thinking, okay, you buy those gilts and then interest rates came down? And that could, that value of yes. guilt, yeah. but also, I mean, typically people always, or investors seem to think that real estate is correlated quite heavily with those yields coming down anyway. So is there, do you agree with that? Do you agree that actually they're quite correlated in the fact that if those guilt yields come down, the total returns on any any um, investors owning them will, will be greater, but equally it's likely that actually capital values for real estate and definitely supermarkets would go up. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question, isn't it? I think the data kind of shows that real estate tends to perform quite poorly at the beginning of an interest rate hike cycle, but then actually it sort of outperforms. And I think if you look back at the data set, yields in yields not just in supermarkets, but in other real estate sectors have been pretty low in high in higher interest rate environments. So, so I, I think it's more that kind of during the adjustment period, you get a bit of volatility, but actually it performs well in low interest because in a low interest rate environment, then presumably you're expecting lower growth, right? And so, you know, and actually- Well, you think, but less, the last less, 14 years hasn't really- <laughs> uh, But, you know, we've got indexing leases. And actually, if you think back to last summer, or the supermarket income rate has, has indexing leases. And if, if you look back to last summer, I mean, like in 2021, RPI was 0.6%. Now, interest rates were very low, and that meant that actually the total return was, was still attractive on a levered basis. Whereas yeah. actually now, if you're really expecting to have high inflation or higher inflation, you can withstand higher rates because actually, you know, you're getting more of your total return from rental growth and from appreciation. So, so I think it sort of swings and roundabouts. And I guess that highlights the importance of kind of understanding what, from an investor's point of view, what, what's the maturity date that you want kind of to get that investment yeah. back or how long are you in it? And how, how long are you finding most people or most investors that invest in, in the super REIT staying in it for or, or visioning staying in it for? We're very lucky that supermarket income REIT has a solid sort of core of very loyal shareholders who are mostly kind of buy and hold investing again for some capital appreciation but mostly for the yield for income so top 10 doesn't really change very much i guess it, we've got the there's always a balance between wanting to have people who are long-term holders and supporters of the stock but also having you know attractive level of liquidity in the stock i think we've got a pretty good balance so there are always people who have a liquidity event i think it's not really a stock that, that, when that people look to trade yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely it's interesting how kind of things are, are going at the moment. Like we, we talked about the, the whole mini budget, inflation rising up. 
one of the things that Super did recently was fix all of its variable debt with an average period of four years and an interest rate under 3%, which is absolutely fantastic when you're looking at this right now. Yeah, yeah. What would be some of the changes in the market that you would want to see before Super moves some of that debt to variable rate or consider drawing down new debt with hedging? I, mean, I think there's a. I think it's unrealistic to think that yields on the assets are not going to move a bit wider. If that happens, then there's. A, I guess there's a debate about how much leverage you really need sure. to be able to deliver the the returns. Because again, thinking back to summer twenty one, if inflation was half a percent, then you actually needed that leverage to get from the starting yield to the returns we want to deliver. Whereas if inflation is consistently running above the caps on on super's uplift, so say four percent then actually you don't need very much leverage to deliver those those total returns over time. Uh, and I think that's kind of a debate that we're things have moved so quickly over the last yeah. the last six weeks. I mean, if debt costs 7% going forwards, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have much debt. If we end up in a world next year where rates have, have normalized again, my instinct is that we'll be advising super to have kind of lower leverage and still achieve the same returns off sort of slightly slightly higher starting yields. I guess, how do you benchmark your the yields that you're trying to achieve for investors? Quite tricky, especially at the moment when you've got, like we've talked about, these kind of guilt rates moving up and down so much. And you almost need a, the next couple of months just to sit on your hands, I guess, to see where things stabilise from. Well, that, that is kind of how we've tried to position super, actually, is to, is to, is to put supermarket income rate in a position where it doesn't really have to do anything at all. So we can just sit and wait, wait out the situation and see what materializes. And if there are some incredible deals to do, then we can go and talk to our shareholders and see whether they support us to, to do that. You know, but actually, we don't really need to do anything because we've locked down all the debt. We're in a comfortable position. In a, in a comfortable position. I mean, the other thing to mention, actually, is that Super has also just agreed the price with Sainsbury's on, on uh, 21 stores in a, in a JV portfolio, which means that actually it, we're expecting that Super's going to have about 200 million of cash inflow between March and June next year. So again, we've got a big liquidity event coming up, which again, I think makes supermarket income REIT quite unique REIT peers in the UK in terms of fixed rate debt, yeah. stability of the underlying asset class, and also, you know, sort of built in liquidity event as well. Absolutely. And um I know, I think it's around 81% of super stores have index-linked rents, like we were saying. Mm. Does it concern you that many of those are capped at 4% increases when inflation numbers are quite a lot above that? Does that cause any concern? I guess it sort of swings and roundabouts. So I think the first thing to say is that if you look at the inflation and gilt market, it's actually really pricing in about 4% kind of levels forward. So, so the market is telling you that it's not expecting these current high levels of inflation to persist. Yeah. You know, of course, we'll see whether the market's right or not. Obviously, on the one hand, it would be nice to be capturing the full sort of 10% inflation in rent reviews. On the other hand, the fact that we've got 4% means that, that our rents are actually getting more affordable for our tenants. So when you look at supermarket income rates tenants, we think that the right level of rent to pay is about 4% of the store turnover. Okay. And of course, in this higher inflation environment, they're growing their turnover faster than our rent reviews, which means our rent's becoming more affordable. So mm -hmm. actually what that does really is it kind of underpins the, the values at the end of the lease. 
because you know, we're, we've become more and more confident that actually we're likely to be able to put the rent up at the end of the lease. And I guess all those those leases are kind of in, inside the act as well. So it's And obviously, because you mentioned before, all the capex that they're spending in the stores, it's likely that most of them want to want to stay on. Most of the tenants have renewal rights as well, actually, to secure their occupation, because these really are, you know, mission critical assets exactly. for them. So they, they desperately don't want us to have the ability to operate to one of their competitors at the end of the lease. Of course. <laughs> there was an interesting time kind of during the pandemic, try and go to the supermarket, toilet rolls disappeared from every shelf and things like that. Omnichannel supermarkets seem to thrive during the pandemic mm. due to their ability to be adaptable. And by omnichannel, what we're saying is that it's not just in-person people buying in the store, it's also deliveries and things like that. Um, have those gains made during the pandemic, have they gone back to pre-pandemic levels? And would you expect them to if they haven't? During the pandemic, we, we got about 10 years worth of online grocery growth in, in about six weeks. You know, we think really underpins the, the value of that omnichannel model, because again, for your list, using the existing supermarket asset to deliver online groceries, but also enables click and collect as well in the car park. And the reason they do it that way is because it puts their last mile delivery node as close as possible to the customer, because the most expensive part of doing online grocery is the last mile. Yeah because you have to have refrigeration and uh, you have to hit one hour delivery slots, all these kinds of things. And so during, so, so our sort of long-term kind of projection for where online grocery gets to is about 20% market share in the UK. And we went from about 8% to 15% during the pandemic. So it's kind of, it's it's gone back again to about 12. Is that more down to the cost of living kind of crisis that people are feeling that actually I'm not going to spend the extra few quid on the delivery, I'm going to go into store or? I think it's a bit of both. So yeah, in recent years, the operators have become much more rational about charging for deliveries. So that is definitely an element of it that having a home delivery is a, has some element of a luxury so people will cut back on that the other piece i think which you know people like us who live you know inside the m25 tend to forget is that most of the rest of the country lives in their car you know actually for a lot of people it's actually remarkably convenient to go and do a click and collect or go to a supermarket because they're already taking the kids to football or whatever on a thursday evening and they can just go and swing by the supermarket while while the kids are playing football in the rain sure. you know? exactly, yeah. <laughs> and uh uh, and then they go and pick it up again. So, or do it on the way home from work. And for a lot of people, it's actually not very convenient to do home deliveries. And so, as we see the sort of reversion to more working in the, you know, more work back at the workplace and a yeah. bit less at home, again, like, you know, it's harder and harder to get delivery slots at work for you because everybody wants a delivery slot at seven in the morning or yeah. after seven in the evening. So, we think it's going to go back onto some sort of trend growth at some point, and maybe we're around that now. But what's really important to us is it, it has really validated the omnichannel model, though, because the omnichannel model is very easy to scale in both directions. So, they scale. Tesco's like pretty much doubled in six weeks um, at the beginning of the pandemic, but actually, there's very little capex for them in doing that. You know, it's it's renting some more vans, it's hiring some more people. It's a very, it's a very operationally flexible model yeah. with very little capital deployed. Whereas, if you go and build, you know, 200 million new automated warehouse, and then it turns out that nobody wants to use it. That's just a disaster, right? So they found it relatively easy to flex up and down these numbers. And that's because they're using the store. And is it only on the channel or predominantly on the channel stores that super are targeting at the moment? As the investment advisor, we predominantly target omnichannel stores for super. But actually, what we're really trying to do is find stores which are sustainable in the long run as a grocery site. And so occasionally, they might not be an omni 
channel store. And that might be the kind of situation where you have a store with maybe 5,000 homes, which have been built very nearby. You know, and again, we really like that kind of situation because you're literally having customers moving in over the next decade adjacent to the store. And that makes it a great investment for supermarket income reads. Absolutely. And, and what about things like grocery-led shopping centers or retail parks versus standalone stores? What are the positives and negatives for both? And I'm just trying to get an idea of what other factors you'd want to see from, from a supermarket asset, really. Yeah, again, as when we're sourcing assets for, for super, we're ultimately again, looking to get the best supermarkets for super to own. And you know, some of those are standalone sites and that has the that has the advantage of simplicity there's nothing else there um, and you only get exposure to the grocery operator uh, but some of those really great sites sort of sit do sit on retail parks now we don't think that super's ever going to be have an exposure of more than say 10 percent to sort of non-grocery operators but some of those operators do perform really well adjacent to a supermarket and we particularly like essentially daily essentials kind of operators who work really well next to a supermarket and also kind of the um, quick service restaurant type of operators as well work well so we've got lots of instances where we didn't recommend purchasing the supermarket and the adjacent retail and we've actually separated the site right okay interesting sometimes that's not possible and so then we have to consider can we really recommend buying the whole thing yeah and again, we've got instances where we have recommended buying the whole thing and Super has invested in in the whole site. And so Bradley Stoke in Bristol, the last acquisition, is an example of that. But actually, there was one which you know screened really well as a supermarket investment, but had a very large fashion retailer box on the site as well. It wasn't possible to separate it. And so actually, we didn't recommend that investment to to super so you know would you look at separating those before purchase or purchasing yes. and then separating could you look at doing that potentially we've typically recommended separating ahead of purchase because i think investors in super like the simplicity of, of the story and there's obviously a, it's a different risk sort of trading effectively. Asset management. exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah fair enough stick to kind of stick to the mandate i guess on that one isn't it yeah Hello everyone, I'm sorry to interrupt, I just wanted to talk to you quickly about a sponsor of ours called Signature Property Finance. They are a bridging loan provider based in Solihull, Birmingham. The company also has regional offices in Cardiff and Edinburgh, which enable them to serve clients across the whole of England, Wales and Scotland. They were established in 2012 and Signature have two primary funding lines, private equity and a traditional debt facility via a high street bank. So what is it they fund and how can they help you? Well, Signature will lend against both residential and commercial property on a standard bridge with a maximum loan to value of 70% and 60% respectively for a term of between six and 18 months. They offer both a light and heavy refurbishment product, again, for a term of up to 18 months. Light refurbishment amounts to anything non-structural in nature, whereas anything involving structural changes requires a heavy refurbishment product. They will lend up to 75% of the lower of the purchase price or day one open market value. Signature also lend development finance up to a maximum loan of 5 million and for up to 15 units. The loan terms are up to 24 months and cover residential or mixed use developments and they will lend up to the lower of 65% of the GDV or 80% of total costs. So why would you use them? Well, in, other, in the words of CEO Tony Gilbertson, Signature do what they say they're going to do. Provided the information given by the customer and or the broker on day one is accurate, 
The terms issued on day one will be the same terms that the customer draws down on. So if you've got any property finance requirements, please contact Tony Gilbertson at Tony, T-O-N-Y, at signaturepropertyfinance.co.uk. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes. And for a limited time only, they are doing a special offer for all Rodcast listeners. If you look to get finance with them and mention the Rodcast, you will get free legals for a limited time only. Yes, that's right. That's free legals for a limited time only. Just mention the Rodcast. They really are a fantastic company that do what they say they're going to do and act quickly. Back to the show. And going back to kind of the omni-channel, what is more profitable for a supermarket? Are they really motivated to grow the kind of click and collect and the delivery side of the business because it's more profitable? It sounds like it, it might be because of the limited amount of capex that needs to go into it. Or is it that the in-store is still much better margins? Yes. So they've also been working a long time on efficiency of the online operation. And one, one thing that's really helped them actually has been the greater penetration of online because the more customers you have within a 15, 20-minute radius of a store who are online customers, the more efficient you can make your delivery routes. And so you can do more drops per hour. And the, and the biggest component of cost in fulfilling online grocery deliveries is delivery piece because you you have to pay for a person and a van and the fuel for the van. And it's why the central model doesn't really work because if you, if you have to drive a long way, it limits the number of drops you can do per hour against that cost of the van. So we think they've got the cost down to a level which is largely compensated by the delivery fee. And also you've got to remember they, they're probably subtly managing the mix of what you buy online, yeah. which uh, which is much easier to do through the app than it is in-store. And so the combination of mix of products that you buy online plus the delivery charge, we think means that for the big operators, like Tesco's and Sainsbury's, the profitability is kind of roughly equal. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I guess it kind of reminds me of, I don't know, before internet was a big thing for, for shopping, I guess, when you'd walk into a supermarket and you had the baked beans at, I don't know, three pence or something as a loss yep. leader to get you in. And actually now it seems that they probably don't need things like that because they've got other avenues with, I guess, like their marketing online, their digital marketing, understanding what the person who's who's online wants and needs. So yeah, it, really interesting how, that, how exactly. that's working. So recently, Super, the British Airways Pension Fund, they hold a 50-50 stake in a joint venture, which holds a 51% interest in Sainsbury's reversion portfolio, which I think you mentioned briefly earlier on. So that portfolio is one of the largest in the UK with 26 stores. What advice would you give to businesses looking to position themselves as an attractive partner in a joint venture? Well, there's a lot in that question. So I think, again, this this sort of splits between you know, Super and, and then us as the advisor. So on, on the Super side, Super is a very attractive JV partner because it just has a reputation of delivering on execution. Mm-hmm. And so it had the balance sheet and the ability to, to do that, that transaction and the board was very supportive of it. And then on our side as the advisors, yeah, you know, I, th- I think we've got we've got a massive sort of information advantage and relationship advantage in the in the grocery space, and I think that's what made the package attractive as a as a JV partner. That it was the insight into the assets that we bought as the investment advisor, and also into the relationship with Sainsbury's, who were the underlying store tenant, combined with Super's ability to execute on the capital side. So I guess it's a bit about kind of um, 
making sure you're in you're in your right lane and you've, you've got the correct offering to give and, and you become essentially a specialist in that you've proven the concept you've proven your capability and ability to perform yes exactly going in and scaling up scaling that up with the with the partners brilliant going back on to the performance of the REIT how sustainable the dividends for the future and will these higher interest costs and other pressures lead to dividend cuts do you think or is it because you've managed to fix your debt at low rates and you don't have a huge amount of debt that you feel that actually your dividends going forward I'd say your super's dividends going forward should be relatively sustainable I think as you say fixing the debt just gives super a very stable platform to operate from you know for the next the next four years I think beyond that, it's kind of quite hard to forecast what's sure. what's going to happen. So I think we feel very comfortable with, and the board of Super feels very comfortable with the dividend level as it I, is. I mean, looking, like we said, at how that debt is structured, I think it, it's, it's difficult not to be really, isn't it, at the moment? In, in terms of kind of REITs across the board, many seem to be trading at the moment a discount to the net asset value. Do you think share prices have reflected the potential net asset value declines fairly? Do you think they've actually gone down too much or not enough across, among talking necessarily sure. about super here but just across the board really yeah and it's it's a sort of um back to that sort of six weeks has been a long time oh, in politics yeah. thing i think at the beginning there was a pretty indiscriminate sell-off across across reads <laughs> yeah and and i think what's happened in the last possibly only the last week or two has been that there's been some better differentiation so so i think the initial kind of call on the investor side was to sell the sector and then that's created some really good kind of value opportunities that people have picked up on and and that differentiation started to i think we're at a more kind of realistic place in terms of look through yield on reits in general than we were than we were probably two weeks ago when you know particularly some of the very secure kind of long dated sort of lease vehicles which had you know again have very secure debt structures were, were trading on sort of crazy dividend yield so um so hoping some of your listeners pick some of those up over (laughs) over that period yeah exactly i mean some of the discounts i thought were pretty pretty crazy at the time um yeah i mean and i think it comes back to that point i made at the beginning i think the important thing to think about is it's around its demand its covenant strength and its rental growth and like you know if you've got a problem in one of those sectors segments then then they're somewhat related to each other aren't they then perhaps it should be trading at a bigger discount because there's more risk going into a consumer recession yeah. you know some businesses can be much more exposed than others other sectors are, have got more you know disruption going on to give office you know people working from home more exactly yeah you know, so that's sort of the way i try to sort of think about it in very simple terms yeah i think that's sensible in terms of investors have you seen that there's been a shift over say the last decade of typical kind of fixed income investors moving more and more into real estate investing or real assets and are you seeing kind of these typical or traditional i guess pension funds and things like that move starting to have a bigger proportion of of their uh, portfolio in real estate than before and and do you think it's just because it's mimicking fixed income where where we had a a low interest rate environment and that's that's a big question isn't it i think there definitely has been some move on that side i mean i think the problem with commercial real estate is that it's by its nature it's quite kind of idiosyncratic yeah. which which is why i guess fund managers REITs are so successful as vehicles because it gives you a way of diversifying your risk yeah, yeah. yeah so i mean personally i think it's slightly crazy for individual pension funds to own we always have this 
this argument with them. You know, does it make sense for an individual pension fund to own fifty uh, one fifty million pound supermarket? I don't think it does because on the face of it, it might be a great investment. But you know, we all make mistakes. If we, as the investment advisor, have made a mistake on one out of Super's sixty nine yeah. supermarkets, it's not the end of the world. But if it's the only one you own, that's a big mistake. So better uh, better to own five ten million pound ones, or 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 own that number of shares in a diversified portfolio either yeah through some sort of fund structure whether it's a REIT or or other so so I do think there has been a move to invest in in real estate I think that it's very hard to do as a sort of self-managed strategy so I think there has been more and more of a move to move into sort of funds and fund managers doing it for people and interestingly I don't know if this is your experience but from what I see um, there seem to be a lot of especially in the smaller kind of privately held pensions where they have bought commercial assets where they've been on these kind of 20-25 year leases especially more so with certain asset classes like retail for example mm. when now a typical lease you're lucky if you're getting a seven-year lease um, let alone kind of 25 years and it's just meaning there's a lot more asset management involved in the sector as a whole and so certainly where it's individuals maybe controlling a, a SIP or a SAS pension or something like that that's owning this real estate they're finding that actually it's not they don't have the capability they don't have the the what the effort really needs to do that and so is that creating more of an opportunity for funds and REITs who are who have that kind of asset management skill, I guess, to be buying and, and dealing with asset classes that now have these much shorter leases than before? Yeah, it's a way of, um, it's not only buying in that expertise, is it? it's also getting the diversification, because I think, you know, if you just classical investment advice, isn't it, that, you know, one asset in one location, you know, you've got point risk. And so, so diversification is usually a good thing. So these kinds of vehicles offer that. Now, obviously, there are lots of other factors to take into account, but uh, they definitely if you pick the right manager and you and you pick that manager has a diversified portfolio, then you would have thought that that's a that that's a better decision than just owning your local whatever it is building. Absolutely. So, what do you see as the biggest risk at the moment to this grocery-led asset class, and what are the key mitigants that you guys are putting in place at the moment? Then, I think the biggest risk is yeah, much higher interest rates, mm-hmm. um, and hence the hedging strategy for super seems like and again that we may be re- reaching sort of peak expectations for for interest rates but but who knows what's so, the duration as well is probably the other the other question yeah. so yeah def- definitely interest rates and and as i say that that's why that's why we recommended to super that it that it hedged the way the way it has definitely i see from your social media profile that you genuinely enjoy visiting and analyzing supermarkets when you're on holiday your your family must be thrilled at that what is it that you like so much about them and what are the most obvious kind of similarities and differences you've seen around the world in terms of the supermarkets yeah, it's it's always it's always interesting to look at yeah, the other the differences are, isn't it? Quite an interesting one was uh, was in Spain recently and uh, going into the the Mercadona, which was right. so Mercadona is kind of like a quite a nice looking but but really a sort of narrow range discount type of type of offering. Yeah, but they had a huge like charcuterie counter with you know all sorts of different kinds of you know Iberico ham and that kind of stuff that with people serving you that so. Yeah, brilliant. On the one hand, you can only get one type of jam because it's a discounter. On the other hand, it's got like a <laughs> an enormous cured ham counter 
Is it, is it a bit like Costco then, where you go in and you've got a kind of cash and carry, but then at the end you've got like, I don't know, all the different food counters and things like that as well? Yeah, it's a bit, it, yeah, it's a nicer sort of, um, as a store, it kind of was a, the, the store experience felt almost sort of like a sort of waitressy level of niceness, really, yeah. you know, yeah, but but very narrow range. So, which is obviously how they then manage that. So they good yeah. quality, narrow range, but also like a big fresh fish counter as well, you know. Brilliant. Whereas clearly UK consumer doesn't really value those kinds of fresh counters. So most of the big operators have closed them down. Um, well, I guess they're, they're difficult to maintain because it's, it's going to be a lot of cost to, to kind of maintain that extra staff and things like that. Maybe, I don't know. Well, I heard, heard anecdotally actually from one of the operators that one of the big things is that, is that the British um, psyche is to be embarrassed to ask the question about something to a stranger. And so, People were embarrassed to ask, you know, what is that cheese? You know, what does it take? They, they'd much rather pick it up, and, and up just go you know, for it. packaged. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? And so what products or features would you like to see in the UK, which already exist elsewhere? Is there anything I else? mean, personally, I'm quite a foodie. So yeah, I kind of like sort of more of the fresh counters, but I kind of understand why people don't don't use them here yeah i mean i think generally speaking we've got you know some of the best operators in the world in this country and we tend to be at the forefront of of what's going on so in just to to pick an example of something that's happened recently so tesco's is doing these sort of just walk out type of stores along the lines of the amazon ones yeah and so i think apart from amazon there's not very many other people in the world doing it and I, i think what's really interesting about tesco's is they've kind of realized there's a sort of a social exclusion element to that technology because even my kids can't use an Amazon Fresh store because they don't have. You need to have the app on your phone. Right? Kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm so, using tech as well. So, <laughs> well, well, Tesco's have done it so you can do both. You can you can go to a checkout, it is self checkout, or you can just walk out. So they've kind of that's a really good solution to that that problem because it's just not. I don't think it's tenable that the whole country moves to only just walk out stores because sure. what happens yeah. if you don't have a smartphone? On? Yeah. But, but, but so, so the point I'm making is, I generally speaking, the grocery sector here is kind of the front foot, and mm-hmm. people are copying what they're doing here globally is that just because we've got brands that i guess are a bit older other countries with sainsbury's and people like that yeah i mean we've had, for something online we've just had very high online penetration which i think is is partly of, of having quite a few brands who have national coverage which is quite unusual in a lot of countries so spain doesn't really have a national operator even yeah. the us is is quite regional so mm. yeah Having that those national operators and also being a relatively sort of densely populated island kind of makes it a good place for running those kinds of experiments, I guess. Definitely, definitely. Well, Ben, thanks so much for coming on. That's been really, really interesting. If people want to know more about Super or Trato, where, where is uh, the best place for them to find out more? Tons of information on the on the Supermarket Income Re website. You know, we've tried again as the investment advisor to super to kind of position it as the most transparent REIT so you can actually click a link and download the whole portfolio in an Excel spreadsheet if you're that way minded so uh, and then as a charter we also have a website that details kind of everything that we do fantastic and I'll make sure I put the links to both of those in the show notes for the listeners so thanks again Ben it's been fantastic to talk to you and get to know more about the supermarket um, asset class thank you great thank you Rod 